in your pew Bible. Uh, we have two weeks left in this book that we are walking through verse by verse. And today we're going to uh, take it verse through uh, 16 of chapter 3. And then Lord, will, Lord willing, uh, next Sunday we will spend the entire week just looking at the final three verses to wrap it up. And so I really, I want to jump right into the text this morning, um, and I will kind of catch you up if you're new or have been missing uh, the last few weeks as to kind of what's been happening in this book. But, but just at the outset, um, this final response we're about to hear from a prophet, this man named Habakkuk, um, it will be different in nearly every way compared to his first two complaints. Um, Habakkuk is fundamentally a changed man. Uh, and so this morning, I want to look at how he gets there. Uh, what's his pathway he takes? Because I'm convinced it is unbelievably applicable for believers today in such a way where uh, it will both fill and challenge our minds and stir our hearts if we'll allow it this morning. So join with me, Habakkuk chapter 3. We're going to start with just the first three verses. A prayer of Habakkuk the prophet, according to the Shagianoth. O oh Lord, I've heard the report of you, and your work, O oh Lord, do I fear. In the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. God came from Taman, and the Holy One came from Mount Paran. His splendor covers the heavens, and the earth was full of his praise few things I want to look at that we just see from Habakkuk that shows just how much he has changed. And first is Habakkuk praise. Okay, so right out of the gate, in the first line of this chapter, we just know this is going to be different. Because this is the only time we're told before he speaks that this is a prayer according to the prophet, according to Shagianoth, right? 80% chance I'm not saying that right. But it's a word that only comes up two other times in the Bible. And it means, it can mean a couple things. It can mean a certain type of instrument that this prayer was sung to, or it just means a type of song. Um, but either way, the point being that this is a prayer song. Uh, another word for it would be one that you've heard of, a psalm. Right? And the rest of this chapter, it reads in such a way where if you were to just put it in the book of Psalms, um, you wouldn't know the difference. This is a deep, um, heartfelt, just yearning for God that portrays truth that's just going to get down deep into your soul, right? And so um, if you just think about the context, that's what music does, doesn't it? Like when we worship and we gather in our worship gathering, um, both in preparation to hearing the word of God proclaimed and in response to hearing the word of God proclaimed, every single week of the year we're going to sing. So why music? Why do we use instruments, right? Like why doesn't Ilya, just as our worship director, just kind of stand up in front of here by himself and just speak you the lyrics, right? He could have just done that this morning, and, and the same words would go out, right? I am a friend of God. I am a friend of God. <laughs> I am a friend of God, right? Like, um, so you, you would walk away hearing the same exact things. Why doesn't Ilya just do that? It would probably save a lot of time and just having to get people to join him up here, um, wouldn't that just be the same, right? Of course not. On any level, right, regardless of what you feel about the Bible and Jesus, you probably like music of some sort. There's probably a genre of music that gets you going, that you make you look like a fool in the car if you don't think anybody's looking at you. So why do we love music so much? The reason, amongst others, is that it portrays a meaning in the words in such a way that hits a depth that otherwise you wouldn't get to. 
It's, it's more than just words merely spoken. It gets down deep to your soul in ways that it would not happen. And, and these, these, this prayer is a song, but, but it's also, it's a prayer. It's communication with God and it reveals this kind of deep submission. Again, a yearning, a reverence that is different from just talking at God. Right? Like we need to understand that. And I think we see that throughout this book. There is a difference between talking at God and praying to God. Habakkuk, in his first two dialogues we had seen in this book, he was just talking at God. It was emotional and it was raw and he was coming out of the gates hot and it was pointed, right? That, that the book opens, this short little just power-packed book opens with, with Habakkuk wanting to know, God, why are you overlooking all this injustice? He looks around and he sees God's chosen people, the nation of Judah, and they are just rebelling against God. And Habakkuk is sitting here going, God, why aren't you doing anything? Your people, they're worshiping other gods. They're completely disregarding the law. They are taking advantage of one another. And they are under this ethic that says, if it feels good, it must be right. And nothing's happening to them. So God, why are you absent God, why are you idle? That's how this book starts. And God hears this. A God who hears and responds, and he goes, oh, I'm not idle. I have not been idle. In fact, I've been raising up and continue to raise up an army that's going to come, the Chaldeans, another name for the Babylonians, and they're going to come discipline my people. I'm raising up a brutal, wicked nation that has just been plundering other cities and nations, and they're coming for Judah next. I'm not idle. Judah will pay for their sin and rebellion. My chosen people will be disciplined. And it's safe to say that is just not the response Habakkuk was expecting. All right, because it shocked him. And it leads us to his second complaint where we read that he said, um, okay, God, you can't actually be doing that, right? Like, that wouldn't be your will to send the Chaldeans, would it? Like, I'm going to wait here for you to respond because surely that's just a metaphor. Surely that's not how this is going to end. Uh, you must just be using them, uh, again, as a metaphor that's not going to actually play out literally. And then God responds again. Okay, um, Habakkuk, this time, write it down. They're coming. I'm, I work in my time and for my purposes. And so, Habakkuk, you need to have faith. Faith is the only right and suitable response to all this that is hearing, and yet it is the best response for God's people when we have questions, when we have doubts, when we have concerns. Faith is the apex, it is the top of the mountain of knowing God and then growing in God. And, and then God does reveal to Habakkuk that he eventually will punish Babylon, he eventually will uh, pour out his wrath on the Chaldeans for their wickedness after they disciplined Judah. And then last week we showed how God um, will always punish evil. And evil always has one end. And God will not fail to condemn. And then in the midst of that just kind of justice-ridden passage last week, we saw kind of these two tucked-in promises to Judah. That one day his glory alone will cover the earth. And then second, that he's not silent. And he is in his holy temple so that everything else will one day come 
bow down in silence before him. And that's what Habakkuk just heard before the text we just read. And Habakkuk is utterly changed. So now the third time, we are told for the first time, now he prays. He submits. He worships after hearing God respond while on the throne when God reveals himself truly to uh, his people, think about this. When God truly reveals himself to his people, there's nothing else for us to do than to come before him and worship. There's nothing else than to stop talking at him and start praying to him. And I just love how he says, oh Lord, I've heard about you. In the past I had heard about you, but now I've heard from you. Now I have a picture of you on your throne and what I am seeing and what I'm hearing, it's living up to what I've heard. And so I fear you. I have deep reverence for you as you sit on the throne. And I just find it striking that Habakkuk says, I've, I've heard about you. Right? Because that's literally a phrase we use all the time. Okay? So when you meet somebody through a mutual friend or family member, uh, it's, it's almost a guarantee that either uh, you're going to say to them or they're going to say to you, um, hey, nice to meet you. I've heard a lot about you. We say it all the time, and then it's always, the follow-up line always has to be, like, it's not even that funny, but we all say it, we're like, oh, I hope it's all good things, right? Like, I hope there was nothing bad, and a little, like, elbow, and it's like an awkward fake laughter after, and like, I don't know why, we just all do it, right? That's like the natural segue from, hey, I've heard a lot about you. But I find it interesting is that when you do finally meet somebody, interact with somebody that you had heard a lot about, that you get to kind of discern and figure out if, if what you had heard about them actually um, lines up with meeting them, with actually getting to know them. So Habakkuk, he had heard a lot about God, probably from the temple, probably back in the days of King Josiah when uh, Josiah rediscovered the scrolls of scripture and shared it with the people in that time of nationwide revival that we talked about in the first week. And then um, at this point when he's writing this letter, that feels like distant past. Because since then, Josiah had died, and Judah just spiraled way back down into oblivion of rebellion, of disregarding God's word. And, and Habakkuk is just sick to his stomach, but now he hears from God. And it affirms all he's heard. And as we'll see, it's making his knees a little shaky. He's finding it trouble to even stand up straight. And so now, in prayerful worship... He pleads, God, revive your name amongst our nation. In the years ahead, make your name big. Make it known. Reveal yourself and then in your wrath. This is just, I can't even grasp the weight of this statement. I can't even unpack it. He says, in wrath, remember mercy. It's an incredibly mature prayer. Remember mercy. Remember your people. Remember your promises, and that's all we have right now, and that's all we need. Lord, remember. And he pauses in verse 3 to just affirm who God is. If you heard Pastor Jeff's prayer, you know how he started it? Father, we praise you for who you are. 
Habakkuk says he came from Taman, which means he came from the south, referring to how this God led his people out of the southern regions of Egypt and Sinai. God, you are the Holy One. You are the one whose splendor covered the heavens. You are the one whom the earth is full in obedience to. You are omniscient. You are omnipresent. You are omni-everything. You're God. And here's the turn in Habakkuk's heart. In the midst of just confusion of God's work in the world, Habakkuk clings to who God is. Because that's the only thing that is unchanging, man. If we just stare at what's going on, there's going to be questions and there's going to be doubts and it's always going to be shifting. And he clings to who God is because that's all he knows. And when thinking about God and considering his work in the world, everything begins with the truth that there is none like him. That we start and we end with the fact that he has no equal and he stands alone on the throne. This is a prayer of a changed man who has matured before our eyes in the last five weeks. This is one of the reasons why I love preaching through books of the Bible. Because if you just kind of read this passage on its own, if you just kind of start reading chapter 3 without really knowing 1 and 2, uh, it could still have value, right? It could still tell you some things. But reading this in light of what we just walked through in chapters 1 and 2, this is all of a sudden power unleashed. This is depth unmeasured. This is Holy Spirit-empowered change. Start with who God is. And then he will change direction in verse 4. And I think this is where we need to dial in and learn from Habakkuk. Because what he does next will fundamentally change our lives if we learn from it. Let's read verses 4 through 15. His brightness was like the light. Rays flashed from his hand and there he veiled his power. Before him went pestilence and plague followed at his heels. He stood and measured the earth. He looked and shook the nations. Then the eternal mountains were scattered. The everlasting hills sank low. His were the everlasting ways. I saw the tents of Kashan in affliction. The, curts, the curtains of the land of Midian did tremble. Was your wrath against the rivers, O Lord? Was your anger against the rivers or your indignation against the sea when you rode on your horses, on your chariot of salvation? You stripped the sheath from your bow, calling for many arrows. You split the earth with rivers. The mountains saw you and writhed. The raging waters swept on. The deep gave forth its voice. It lifted its hands on high. The sun and moon stood still in their place. At the light of your arrows as they sped, at the flash of your glittering spear. You marched through the earth in fury. You threshed the nations in anger. You went out for the salvation of your people. For the salvation of your anointed. You crushed the head of the house of the wicked, laying him bare from thigh to neck. Verse 14. You pierced with his own arrows the heads of his warriors, who came like a whirlwind to scatter me, rejoicing as if to devour the poor in secret. You trampled the sea with your horses, the surging of mighty waters. Habakkuk prays. And then Habakkuk remembers. Did you pick up on what he just did there? Habakkuk is singing a song highlighting God's past faithfulness to his chosen people. Habakkuk is actively recounting the times God has delivered his people in the past. And he is just gushing about what he's heard about God. 
It's not a chronological accounting of everything God has done. Because, and, and honestly, I think that's okay because if you were asked to recount the great works of one of your heroes... Okay, who's one of your heroes? Maybe your dad or a famous athlete or a famous actress. I don't think you'd necessarily feel like you'd have to go in chronological order of all the great things they've done. I think you would just go in the order of what comes to mind first, what, what had the most impact on you. Okay, so if we just did this, Michael Jordan, all right? For those of you who think I talk too much about LeBron James and I'm a millennial and this and that, like Jordan was the best. All right, let's talk Jordan, all right? What, what do you love about Jordan? Why was he so great? Like you would probably go, well, there's that game-winning shot in the 1998 championship. There's scoring 40 in the playoffs when he could barely stand because he had the flu. There was that baseline jam on Ewing and the Knicks. There was the dunk contest when he jumped from the free throw line. Okay, so my illustrations, they need some balance, so I'm told, okay? So let's see, you're, say you're a huge fan, a huge fan of the actress Candace Cameron, like my wife. If you don't know her, she might go by DJ Tanner, all right? Uh, not my wife, uh, Candace Cameron, all right? Uh, if you wanted to recount her career, you'd go like, man, she just had that stint on The View and she did great. She's in like literally every other Hallmark Christmas movie, all right? Uh, full confession, the first of which uh, Rochelle and I just watched this past week in the first week of November. We have about 49 on our DVR right now. Rochelle will watch every one by December 25th, all right? And, and Candace Cameron will be in half of them. Um, and then, or or take, take your picks or just go back, man, DJ Tanner. She just never was able to top being DJ on Full House, all right? And like she's just a star and you're just going to recount all the things that she's done across her career. Um, in the same way, Habakkuk just explodes off the page on the things he's heard about God. And they're all rooted in scripture. And so very quickly, I just want to run through what he's just done to kind of show you that this is not just a random saying. These are connected to stories he's heard about God in a big way. First, Four recounts the time that God revealed himself to Moses and he veiled his face on Mount Sinai in Exodus 19 where, where God gave Moses the law and where there was thunder and there was lightning raining down on the mountain so that Moses could not see the Lord because it would have killed him to get an unfiltered look at his glory. Verse 5, pestilence and plagues come before him, referring to the time in, when Israel was held in captivity in Egypt, and, and Pharaoh would not let them go because that's his slave labor. He can't let 1.5 million people just walk away because a guy like Moses came and said he has to. And so God rains down 10 plagues to Egypt, the last of which sets them free in Exodus 12. Verse 6, referring to creation, how God just spoke it into being in Genesis 1. All the measurements of creation that we are still trying to figure out all these thousands of years later as to where it ends. And I think all technology has shown us is that we will never get to the end. This thing is ever expanding. We have no idea of its measurements. And all we are confident of is that we'll never get to the end of it. And our God just spoke it into being in a moment. A seemingly never-ending universe from an everlasting creator. Verse 7, the tents and curtains of Kushan and Midian uh, trembling. Those being uh, two Arab nations that were really just kind of adjacent to the land of Canaan. And they just watched as Joshua led uh, the, the Israelites into Canaan and took it over. And they started just trembling. They're seeing this little nation overcoming vast kingdoms. And they're going, man, who is their God? The same God that Rahab heard about from Jericho and told the spies and said, man, we've heard about what your God has done. Save us. We don't stand a chance. 
verse 8, speaking of God's power over rivers and seas, and uh, especially in an ancient culture, any kingdom was only as strong as its closest source of water. All the major ancient kingdoms needed a, uh, a robust source of running water that they could draw from. And so um, now uh, Habakkuk just says, and you're God who turned the Nile to blood in Exodus 7. You split the Red Seas in Exodus 14 so Egypt could cross over in dry land. And then you split the Jordan River in Joshua 3 so this nation of 1.5 million men, women, and children could cross into the promised land. Verses 9 and 10 speak of the power God puts on display for all of creation to see, to be witnesses to. So there's dozens and dozens of times in the Old Testament where uh, authors are just gushing about uh, in historical and poetic books um, about the power of God over floods and the power of God over lightning that just cuts through the landscape. Mountains start trembling in earthquakes, all of creation groaning in a deep voice, all listening to the voice of God. Verse 11, the sun and moon stood still. Famous story that you probably learned as a kid. Recounting Joshua's victory over Gibeon when Israel had this nation and their king in pursuit. And God said, you need to completely defeat them. And so they had them on the ropes, but then darkness starts to fall. And darkness starts to threaten. And Joshua cries out to God, God, let the sun stand still. Give us daylight so we can finish the job. And God just did it. And if there's some natural skeptics out there like me, you might say, hey, wait a minute. The sun always stands still. Right? This is proof that the Bible has errors in it. These guys didn't even know that there was the earth going around the sun, not the other way around. Um, so just to use a minute, I probably don't need to address it, but I want to. Um, call it what you want. But just because biblical authors had an errant view of the world's shape and the universe's movement does not mean that what God has spoken through them isn't true. So Joshua said, sun stand still. Let's just say God knew what he was talking about. Let's just say God knew what he wanted, and so he made the earth stop. Sun stands in its place. How about that? Because God can and God does, and God, everything in the creation answers to his voice. Verses 12 and 13, you threshed the nations and went out for the salvation of your people, speaking to the multiple times that God went before Israel and in Israel's smallness glorified his might through them by taking down mighty nations. This uh, just traveling nations, this just ragtag group that didn't even quite get it, now sweeps through Canaan and the so-called giants of the land, the most fertile land really in the world, and he just crushes mighty kingdoms in order to provide a place for his people. And finally, verses 14 and 15, he came like a whirlwind to trample the sea and surge mighty waters in relation to the final defeat of Pharaoh. Pharaoh who released this nation out of uh, Egypt and then had um, seller's remorse. You know what I'm saying? All of a sudden he's like, wait a minute, that's our whole labor force. We need to go get them back. I changed my mind, right? So he gets every chariot. He gets the whole army. He corrals them. He sends them out and says, go bring that nation back. That's our slave labor. And uh, after Israel crosses the Red Sea in dry land, this army comes up and goes, we're going to run after them. They get all into the middle of the Red Sea. The waves come crashing down and Pharaoh... And his whole army is defeated and destroyed in a moment. Man, how big is your God? 
Is your God as big as Habakkuk recounts? Are his works as mighty as the ones recorded in your Bible? And I get it there are times when we open up our Bible and it feels dry. Like, I get it when Ilya says, man, like, there's just tricky things in the Old Testament. And, like, thank you, God, for Matthew when we get to the New Testament. But let me just say this to balance that out. Um, if our Bible feels boring when we read it, that's our problem, not the Bible's. Because you cannot read what's in this Bible, consider what is in there, consider who is in there, see the power that comes off the page and go, man, this is boring. And so the question for us as we read Habakkuk just gushing over this, is the God we worship, the God of the Bible, or is it some cultural false God that uh, looks more like a magic genie that we think we can control by living a good life. That we can control and he can just give us what we want when we want. Is that the kind of God? Like we think we want that. We think we want the God of our culture. But we need the God of the Bible. And just believe me, trust me when I say that the God of the Bible is far better than the God of our wildest imagination. And in this grand remembrance of Habakkuk, all these events have something in common. Which is why I think he's doing it. He recounts all the times when God's people were on the ropes. When they were in dire situations. When the walls just felt like they were closing in. When evil seems like it has won. And it's in those moments that God shows up and delivers his people. Every single time, God does not fail. And he does not forget. And he doesn't show up late in holding true to his promises. And all of a sudden, we find that this little song tucked in a minor prophet somewhere buried in your Old Testament, there's some muscle behind it. Let's keep going and read now verse 16. Habakkuk says, I hear, and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters into my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. Yet, I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us. So Habakkuk prays. Habakkuk remembers And third, Habakkuk waits. Amongst other things, here's what verse 16 just affirmed, and this is important, right? Dial in, give me 10 minutes. Habakkuk still has questions. Habakkuk still fears what is coming, and he still has concern over the state of his people with the fact that the Chaldeans are on the way. He says, My body is trembling. At what you just told me. I'm feeling deep sorrow. And and he can't quite strengthen his legs underneath him. To be able to stand without shaking. Because God's initial response rocked him. And it rocked his world. And I cannot imagine what it would be like to hear God say. Yeah, I'm not idle. 
I'm sending an army to come do work on your nation because of the great rebellion and pervasive depravity of my people, despite my faithfulness to them. I just can't imagine what it would be like. So yes, Habakkuk still has questions, but he is fundamentally changed. He says, now I will quietly wait for the day of trouble when we get invaded by people who want to harm us. Because I know that won't be the final chapter. He vows now to be quiet. He vows he won't just talk at God and critique. He won't fill his plate with complaints because now he's heard from the Lord. And so he will accept what comes by faith. Not because all his questions are answered, but because when he fixed his eyes on God, first on who he is, second on what he has done, he is given assurance despite the existence of his questions. So, so here's the point. I rarely try and boil down an entire sermon to one point, but this morning I feel led to just, here's one takeaway point. I'm going to put it on the screen. That we need to own as believers as a result of reading this. To allow God's past faithfulness to fuel present faith in future deliverance. That's a word we need to hear today from Habakkuk. To allow God's past faithfulness to fuel present faith in future deliverance. Before our eyes, Habakkuk is doing this. He's recounting all as God has done in the past, and he's using it to fuel and to motivate his own present faith that God does not fail, that God has never failed, and that he will be faithful to deliver again. And regardless of what happens, it won't change the fact that God is going to come out on top in the end, and he will not leave nor forsake those who have put their faith in him. So here's why this passage, and I think its central meaning behind it, of remembering God's faithfulness is so vital for believers today. Because in the day-to-day grind of life, listen, it's not a matter of if you're going to have some questions along the way, but what are you going to do with them when they threaten to wreak havoc on your soul? It doesn't take long to look around and notice this world has fallen And in this world, we will face trouble. Like Jesus said that. Physical, emotional, spiritual. There are going to be countless barriers that are just going to crop up and try and separate us from God over and over and over again. That are going to keep people from wanting to believe in God in the first place. And when I talk to unbelievers who are wrestling through things of faith, and and some of you that I've had conversations with, I I want to, as best as I am able, to just sit and listen to their questions first. Before I start talking, to hear out their struggles with belief, the reasons why they just can't get there. And, And they're not small matters. There are deeply emotional barriers that are existing. There are intellectual barriers. There are barriers where just the cost is just too high to trust in Christ. It's too high relationally in how they're going to deal with family and friends that they have in their life who may not be as accepting of the fact that now they're following Christ. There's there's barriers and the cost that could happen professionally with work, how they approach work. 
and there are other things that may be spoken, probably are not spoken, that if they're honest, they're just not willing to give up to follow Christ. It's just not worth it. I'll take my chances. And, and so what I will say when given an opportunity is that trusting your life to Christ, it doesn't necessarily occur when every single question is answered. It doesn't necessarily occur when every single barrier is removed. Trusting our life to Christ occurs when the Holy Spirit reveals himself in such a way where Jesus Christ becomes so magnificent, so treasured, so glorious, that our hearts are gladdened to submit to everything to him, even in the midst of some questions. You see, not only can we, as the church today, recount these same stories in the times of deliverance in the midst of dire circumstances that Habakkuk did from the Old Testament, but church, we have a story that tops them all. We have a story of a God who brought heaven to earth, who took the initiative to send his only son into a world of brokenness, where he would be wrongly charged, he would be humiliated on a Roman cross, and he would be crucified at the hands of an angry, jealous, overly religious mob. A moment where evil seemed to have won. A weekend where the devil was proud. Where Jesus' disciples were on the ropes. And a moment that God stepped into that space, raised his son from the dead, so that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. It's in that single event when our hearts are opened to the truth of that, to see Christ not just as a teacher, not just a guy that may or may not have existed, but as a guy who came to give his life for me and for my sin. That story is in our Bible, and that story is what can boldly and confidently give us the faith that God will not fail. Where we can see that, I mean truly see that with our hearts and go, like Habakkuk, okay, I'll wait. I'm going to wait in faith. And I'm going to believe. And that's not just a one-time deal. That's not just for those who put their faith in Christ for the first time. That is for every single person who believes in Jesus Christ every single day of their life. The commitment to say, I'm going to wake up today and I'm going to choose faith today. And then I have questions. I'm looking around, and I, have, I just see what's going on out there. But today, I'm fixing my eyes on Christ, and I'm going with faith. And it's not blind faith. It's not fingers crossed faith. It is faith that is rooted in the past faithfulness and deliverance of God. So we don't ask for tribulation. We don't go around looking for suffering and try to wear it as a badge of honor. But listen, we're not really taken aback by it either. It really shouldn't shock us because we knew this was coming. And listen, personally, I, I thank God daily for the provision he has placed over the life of myself and my family. But hear me, I am not under any illusion that would keep me from knowing that tomorrow could be the worst day of my life and I just don't know it yet. But what I do know today, man, what I hope I'm clinging to tomorrow is that regardless of what happens, God's past faithfulness will give me present faith to trust in future deliverance. 
And when I read my Bible, I see over and over and over again the plea for God's people to remember. And I see it and I hear it of men and women I meet with week after week who are just being mowed down by life struggles. Who are being kicked down, picked back up, kicked down again with anxieties and worries and broken relationships. Like this isn't hypothetical for the church. This isn't hypothetical for believers. Because life is messy and it is complex and it's so up and down it could be just a downright grind. But the only faith that works is the faith that will stand when your world crumbles and your soul aches behind words. You know what doesn't work? Forming our faith around a God where we're told once we have faith, everything is going to run smoothly. Hardship's going to go away. Every pathway professionally is going to open up. Every disease is going to be healed. Every prayer request answered because now you're on God's team. Like, I still can't wrap my head around the fact of why that's such an attractive message, not just in the U.S., but globally. This false pro- prosperity gospel, and you know why it, it just, I don't get it. It's because it completely falls apart once the reality of a broken world rears its ugly head in our own lives. Like, that kind of God can't sustain you when the phone rings and your life crumbles in a single phone call. That kind of God can't sustain you when the tumor you were praying for would be benign comes back malignant. That kind of God can't sustain you when your boss says, we need to eliminate your position. Eliminate your position. In countless other situations, the only God that can sustain us in those situations is the God of the Bible. The God who, when we admit our knees are shaking so hard I can barely stand, That leads us to say, all I can do is allow your past faithfulness to fuel present faith in my future deliverance. And I'm going to cling to that. And it might be in this world, it might not be till glory, but I'm clinging to it. And so church, we cling to victory. And we cling to Christ. And that might seem strange now. And that might seem out of whack now. And that might seem dire now. But delivery is coming. Count on it. Let's pray. Father, in a shifting landscape of our culture where the goalposts are always moving, where questions abound, not only what we see out there, but what we feel in our own hearts, Father, I pray as a church we would cling to this. This would not be hypothetical. This would not just be a good word to forget, Lord. I pray that we would apply this together as a church, that we would see all the times you've been faithful to deliver your people and that we would know you will do it again. Father, especially for my brothers and sisters in here who are struggling, who are facing that grind, who are in the thick of it, Father, I pray that we would come alongside them, weep with them, and then boldly and confidently point one another to fix our eyes on you, for that's where victory reigns. It's the name of your son, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.